rotten motherfucker. Hello, friends. Welcome to Mostly Harmless. I'm your host, Damn It Damien. Buddies, we're sitting down, we're chatting with my new best friend forever, Mr. Sean Hamill. He is the writer of Cosmology of Monsters, which came out in 2019 on Pantheon Press. Pantheon Press is a subsidiary of Penguin Random House. So this is a big deal. You could find this book in the bookstores uh, around Halloween in its paperback version. It's got a really great quote from Stephen King about how this is a uh, very John Irving-esque horror novel and i will tell you it's one of the best novels best debut novels i've read in a very long time and one of the best novels i've read in a long time it's really re-kickstarted my love of reading uh it's not a traditional horror novel uh in that it's more of like you know sean says it himself it's more of an emo book uh but it's about the monsters inside of us in the, the our own battles as well as the monsters outside of us too ah it's it's a fun cool book and i really can't wait to see the success of what happens i like this book so much i've gifted it to three different friends of mine i've loaned this copy out two or three times and you know what buddies if you're interested in reading this book i'm such a big fan of it the first two people that write me at damian d-a-m-i-a-n at mostly harmless podcast.com and just say gimme 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 or whatever uh I'm gonna I'm gonna mail you a copy of this book from bookshops.org. That's how much I like this book. That's how much I want other people to read it and like it. Uh, we even talked to Sean about starting a book club. If you're at all interested in joining our little book club event, please let us know. Damien at mostlyharmlesspodcast.com. Uh, comment below in the YouTube's. Speaking of YouTube, easiest way to support this silly little channel is just click that little button that should be right around here saying subscribe to Mostly Harmless Podcast. As soon as we get up to enough viewers, we can make a little bit of money on this thing. So if you want to just directly send some money, we're on Patreon at patreon.com slash Mostly Harmless Podcast. We're also on iTunes, Stitcher, um, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcast from. Buddies, I've rambled on way long enough. We're going to have a great chat today with Mr. Sean Hamill. I can't wait. So let's just let's just get right into it right now. How are you? Not bad. I hope you don't mind my fake background. It's just no. my office. It looks like nothing. So. Yeah. Uh, is that Doom or Wolfenstein behind you? That is uh, Doom. Those are the flaming Doom, cool. skulls. Yeah. Um, it's the only background I've got that actually kind of reads uh, oh, sure. with me in the middles. You know, you can actually <laughs> see stuff. Like I've tried putting the cover of Cosmology back there, but it doesn't look like anything. So yeah. uh, hey, we're hanging out today. We're talking to Sean Hamill, the writer of Cosmology of Monsters. Hooray! Like fake <laughs> fake clapping or whatever i don't know what to do john how the hell are you on this fine monday afternoon i'm pretty good um thanks for having me finding this book or when this book found me i was like man i really want to i really want to talk to sean i really want to meet this guy i really want to be friends with him uh it's you're from arlington i was originally born in dallas and i'm like we're how old are you i'm 37 37 I'm 39 so we're roughly the same age like who knows maybe if I had never left uh, Texas we might have been like friends who knows so I was like man I want to meet this Sean guy I want to talk to him well the only way I can do that right now is during the pandemic well maybe I should start the podcast back up and you've been on this list of people I've wanted to talk to so I was like do we wait till your new book comes out or do we just do it now and try to sell this now while people are still sitting at home so yeah because the the book that I'm writing, it's better we're doing it now because uh, just to give you an idea of what the timeline was like, I know it's different with different writers, different editors, but I sold Cosmology in November of 2017 and it didn't come out until September of 2019. So even if I sell a book this year, there's a chance you might not see it till 2023. So I'm glad we're doing this now instead of waiting another two years. Yeah, man. Well, then I I can like, I can just get those, those cool points and be like, I knew it. I knew it was going to be great then, or, you know, whatever, you know, I was there first. So what hey, is the, I, re- uh, what's that? Oh, go ahead. No, no, no. no. Just, We're just... Thank you for being on the ground floor. <laughs> yeah. One of my very, very best friends lives in New York or lived in New York city. We don't text very often. And then just one day out of the blue, she texted me and she's like, Damien, I just finished this book. I absolutely adored it you're the first person I'm telling like you have to read this book and it's funny because I had was just finishing reading uh the world according to garp by John Irving and so on the very front of the cover is a quote if John Irving ever wrote a horror novel it would be something like this I loved it by one of my favorite writers Stephen King and then I'm kind of an acquaintance of mine uh for NPR Jason Heller wrote a fantastic review of the book and I bought it and then uh I read it in like three days yeah that review was um that was an yeah 
uh, tell Jason, thank you. I've told him, but yeah. next time you talk to him, say thank but, you. I, um, I actually have a sort of a funny story about this. So are you familiar with Kratom? Do you know what that is? I do not know. Sort of, uh, it's legal in some states. It's, you know, how there's CBD and stuff now. Right. You know? Well, this Kratom stuff is basically supposed to be kind of like weed. It's not legal everywhere. Like you can get it in pill form or in edibles or whatever. My wife and I had gotten some of it in Georgia and I had had a, I'd found that it was useful for whenever I was feeling anxious. So I had to fly. This was the first time I was flying anywhere for the book tour. So we were flying to Salt Lake City. I decided to take some of this stuff because I was nervous about flying and about the event and all of it on an empty stomach, got on the plane. (laughs) When I woke up, I was being sick. Like I didn't, I, I didn't come all the way awake until I was just vomiting everywhere. And like they had to refund the tickets of the people sitting in the row in front of me. And I had to oh. change clothes. Thank God we packed changes of clothes in our carry-on. Um, my wife is just trying to, you know, clean me up. Um, she was a real superhero that day. And then when we we landed, though, that NPR. Uh, you know, uh, review had just gone up. So it was like this wonderful, like, okay, all isn't lost. <laughs> you know, my career isn't over just because I threw up on an airplane and couldn't get to the sick bag in time. Mm-hmm. But um, so, you know, don't, um, don't take Kratom and get on a plane or, yeah, no. or, or eat something first. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, how long a flight was that? Uh, it, well, it was the first of two, like, because sure. I've lived Birmingham area, almost nothing is a direct flight. I have to connect somewhere. So yeah. I think we connected somewhere like, I don't even remember, maybe like Colorado or something. Um, so it was on the first leg from Birmingham. Um, and I just, I, I, I didn't put two and two together about the Kratom. I thought it was motion sickness. So I'm like stopping in the store and buying all this Dramamine. And you know, it's not until later on in the day, I'm like, well, hang on. Yeah. That sounds like the first time I ever ate an edible. I was like, oh, I'm, for the first couple of hours, I was like, I don't feel anything. You eat a couple more. And the next thing you know, it's like a couple of days later and you're like, where, where am I? Where have I been? I don't know if you experienced oh, yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> Actually, um, yeah, the first time I did edibles, we, um, we baked cookies at a friend's house. My wife was the baker. She was kind of the one who knew how to do everything. Um, when they were done, she gave us all a cookie and I ate it. And like 15 minutes later, I wasn't feeling anything. So I ate a second one and then got like profoundly fucked up for like the rest of the day. I couldn't move. I couldn't keep my eyes open. Like that, it, you know, that joke about it hitting you like a ton of bricks. That was, that was me. I, I know exactly what you're talking about. I've been very careful with edibles since then. Yeah, very, you, oh, man. And then, and then days later, it's like, oh, I got this weird flu. And then it's like, wait, no. Candy, gummy bear, sleep two days. Oh, that wasn't the flu. Yeah, there it goes. A weed hangover, yeah. Yeah, ooh, I, might, I, I might be on a little one of those today. <laughs> but I really want to know who the hell is Sean Hamill. And I wanted to know, starting with, like, when I know when I was a little kid, I really, really wanted to be a writer. I did not necessarily follow those dreams. But did you want to be a writer when you were growing up? I, I always wanted to be creative. I, I remember from a very early age, I wanted to make stuff and I loved stories or behind the scenes. You know, anytime HBO did one of those behind the scenes, like, yeah first look things like I remember being really fascinated with those from an early age um I at first I thought I wanted to be a comic book artist because that you know I loved comic books and um it was the 90s early 90s so like comic book artists were like millionaires at this point you know like Rob Liefeld and Jim Lee but in fourth grade I don't know if they did this at your school or not uh, did they do something called Young Authors Day I don't know about that. I went to a weird, I grew up in Shreveport, Louisiana, uh, not too terribly far from Dallas or Birmingham where you're at now. Um, And in my fourth grade class too, like we would have this hands-on teacher that we would write books and the rest of the class would check them out. And I wrote a series of Bartman books like (laughs) that were like the most popular. So I, I think if it's something similar to that. Yeah, yeah. Every every kid is given the opportunity. They they give you like a little blank storybook essentially, and you could you know write and draw. And um, so I wrote and drew my story. Uh, I think it was sort of a rip off of uh, 
Days of Future Past and Star Wars just kind of mashed up together. You know, everybody in my class really liked the story, but the one thing I noticed, like, even at age 10 was everybody else's drawings looked so much better than mine, but they all loved the story. And so I was like, okay, yeah, I, I, I think I found my lane and that that's taken different shapes over the years. Like for a long time, I wanted to be a a screenwriter. Um, and then at one point I wanted to be a full on like auteur director, you know, writer director, but what I found out in the few shorts that I've made, um, which, you know, I think they're all on IMDb. So if, if you want to see me embarrass myself, there's a real easy way to do it. Um, okay. I, I actually would like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, then, then just put my name in on IMDb. Uh, you can see stuff that I was in and then stuff that I made. But what I figured out making movies was that I really didn't like, it's not that I dislike people. I love people, but I'm not I don't know. I, you know, I had uh, friends who were filmmakers and I would watch the way they would interact with actors and like what a, you know, an open, organic, emotional process that could be when it was going well. And that's just not me. You know, I'm kind of a, what I liked was writing the story. I loved editing too, but like actually being in the room, especially for like emotionally tough scenes where people are fighting or yelling, like it just sort of triggers something in my like little PTSD, my parents are fighting brain. And I'm just like, I can't, I can't be in the room with it. So, um, you know, and, and I was lucky enough to have a really good fiction teacher at the University of Texas at Arlington, who she came out of uh, Michigan's MFA program, which is, you know, one of the top programs in the country. And she'd won a Hopwood and all this stuff. And she kind of was the first person to really take me seriously, you know, and, and started, you know, giving me like, David Foster Wallace or Laurie Moore or all these, you know, literary writers. She was like, I lo- you're a good writer, but, you know, all these twist endings, like, you know, it doesn't work for M. Night Shyamalan anymore and it sure as shit isn't working for you. And she really took me seriously and, and sort of mentored me. And that's kind of where I figured out like, okay, yeah, I, uh, fiction is where it at. That's, this is my home base, you know? Yeah. Uh, that's that's real cool that you got to narrow it down. I too was somebody like at one point I was like I'm gonna go to film school and then I'm gonna do this. I was gonna be a journalist. Uh, the punk rock kid in me got in the way and I was like, well, I don't need to go to school for this. I'm just gonna go do it. Some days I wish I had the schooling for some of this weird stuff that I'm doing now, but I don't. Do you feel like school helped you succeed in following your these paths, or do you think you'd be doing this without school? I mean, I was doing it anyway. Um, but I definitely think that school opened some doors for me that wouldn't have normally been open um, to guys like you and me, you know, just coming from DFW or just growing up and not being uh, already somehow sort of connected to something in the industry. My, I, I applied to MFA programs right out of college and I didn't get in anywhere in like 2008. And then I met, um, she was my girlfriend, but then became my wife. Um, I met her and she was finishing school. So I stayed, it took her a few years. And in that time, what I did was, you know, I, I published my first story. Uh, that teacher brought me on to the reading committee for um, this prize that the University of North Texas gives out. It's the Catherine Ann Porter Prize for Fiction. And they award a, they publish a, a book of short stories every year um, from the winning writer and they actually get a book contract and they're paid and everything. Um, and so basically for four years, I was sort of in between and I wrote a novel and I published a story and I kept in touch with that teacher kind of with the, in the back of my head, like, okay, I'm gonna try this again, maybe when my wife finishes school. And I, managed to find an agent for that first novel I wrote but the novel never sold and then she left the business but then I got into the Iowa Writers Workshop and I don't think I would have gotten in there without all that other stuff kind of you know when you're reading the slush pile you I think that might be the most valuable like writing education you can actually get even more than what you learn in a classroom because when you have to read hundreds of stories by strangers in the course of months, you start to notice real quick what everybody's doing, what, you know, what, uh, what's interesting, what bores you, when does, 
because you're looking for, and you start to realize that editors, you know, are, they're looking for any excuse to put your work down because there's always more good work than there are places to publish something. So if you give them an excuse, they're going to put it down and move on. So you have to basically convince them to hang on, seduce them essentially, you know, all of that I learned because of this undergrad mentor who kept bringing me into things even after I graduated. She kept, you know, inviting me to things. She would take me to parties and introduce me to like, you know, visiting writers at the University of North Texas, uh, things like that. So, and then of course, getting into the Iowa, I mean, I, I think the Iowa pedigree is why my book came out from, you know, a, 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 one of the big five publishers and not, you know, more of like a smaller indie press, you know, that's kind of where I originally thought it would end up. But I think that Iowa, you know, that, that carries a certain prestige with it, you know, that immediately makes an agent put you at the top of the pile to at least look at and same with an editor. Um, I mean, if, if the work's not there and they don't like it, that's not, you know, it, yeah. but it, but it gets you through the door. So I guess that's a long way of saying, yeah, it, if, if in both terms of education and networking, it was hugely influential. The other thing I noticed in Iowa was most people weren't like me in terms of their backgrounds. Like I was there in my early thirties and most of the people there were like in their early to mid twenties and they've just graduated from places like Harvard or Brown university or whatever. And I'm this kid from Arlington, Texas, you know, who's or man grown man with these children, you know, these from pretty affluent backgrounds. And you really start to see like just how big a gap there is between people you know, in the, the lower to lower middle class in terms of the opportunity available and then like the people who are most likely to get published and everything. So like, I am incredibly lucky to have kind of jumped through these hoops to end up where I ended up. But I, I you know, I also realized some of that is just chance, you know, some's talent, but a lot of it's chance. Yeah. Uh, one, one thing that just popped in my head is it's like, you're talking about you know, you worked with all these people, you're reading things, you're putting things down. Can writing be taught to somebody, to people, or do some people just, you have to have that thing inside of you, if uh, that makes sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 it makes perfect sense. Is it, is it something that you're born with, or is it something that can be nurtured? I think there is such a thing as natural talent, but I also think that talent is a lot more common than most people give credit for. I think what's rarer is that work ethic that will push you through, you know, because when you decide to become a writer, you're signing up essentially for a life of mostly rejection, right? Like for every yes you get, there's, you know, maybe 200 no's leading up to it, you know? So you have to be really stubborn. You have to really want it. And it has to be something that you would do anyway, even if you were never going to get paid. And I think that was kind of what kept me in it was like, even, even in those years between college and grad school was just this I couldn't stop doing it. You know, it was like, this is what I do. This is, this is how I define myself, not my eight to five, whatever, you know, it's this, this is always how I've defined myself. Um, I, so I, I don't know that that really answers the question. I think John Gardner in one of his books, you know, he wrote the art of fiction and Grindel um, talks about how he believes it's more of like a combination of interest and dedication like, if you're not interested in it, why would you get good at it, right? Like, you know, and it's possible to be interested and try really hard and not be good at it. I've, I've met writers like that who worked hard, but like their stuff just never made that jump. Um, but usually they ended up finding something that they were better at and kind of going on with that. And so, you know, uh, John Gardner said more people fail at being businessmen than fail at being novelists, you know? So like if you're, oh, yeah. you know, stubborn enough, I, I, I think you can, you can, you can get there, you know? Yeah. And I listen to a lot of those comedy podcasts, um, you know, Mark Barron or any of those guys interviewing Conan. Uh, and it's, it's less like, well, that guy was talented. That guy was talented. That guy was talented, but that guy just wanted it more. And uh, I think that's gotta be part of it. Like uh, I got laid off earlier this year and I started just sitting down every single day and trying to hammer out 1500 words, not a lot. And just 
Some days it's just like, I don't know what to write for 1500 words, but some days themes and things start popping up and out of nowhere. And I'm like, weird themes that I would never have anticipated or popping out of my own work. What, what is your style of writing? How do you sit down and craft something? Well, it, it seems to be evolving. I used to be a lot more precious about it um, and sort of superstitious. Like I, I had certain rituals and I had to feel a certain way about an idea to really, um, you know, get it, to the finish line. I, and um, that that's kind of what's what took me so long after cosmology, because I poured everything I had at that time into that book so that when I sold it, not only do I have that fear of success, right? Like, because I've sold it and I'm, but I don't have another book written yet. So like now it becomes like, okay, well, what do I do next? Does it have to be another horror novel? Does it have to be like this does it you know am I am I already in a pigeonhole like somebody tell me what to do so I've got that but then there's also like I just didn't I didn't trust myself enough to follow any of the ideas I did have sure. and I kept trying to check in with other people and get their basically what I wanted was somebody to tell me if you write this book we will buy it you know and what I kept and you know maybe 10 books down the line I'll, you know, we'll get there. But like with just one book under my belt, like that's not really how it was going to work, especially, you know, since it didn't, you know, blow up like say the night circus or something and become, you know, an international phenomenon. Um, so what I, you know, what I, what I've started doing is treating it more like work. I mean, I've always worked at it, but I guess like understanding that my attention I think Matt Bell, who's a, a very gifted writer and a good teacher, um, he's on Twitter, talked about how basically his attention produces more good work in the long run than his good feelings or bad feelings on any given day. And I think I let the bad feelings really fuck with me for a long time. And part of it was I needed to go to therapy. And part of it was uh, I wasn't properly medicated for my own like intense anxiety issues and so in the last couple of years I've made you know I've made a lot of progress and now I'm at a point where like I was terrified of course that old cliche about if you get medicated or treated you're going to kill the spark in you yeah. and maybe for some people that's true but I think for me it's been very freeing because it means it I'm not that self-loathing would slow me down. You know, there would be days where I could not make myself write when I was working on cosmology because I, what I was writing just wasn't good enough for me. Um, and now this new book, uh, which I started about a year ago, basically when quarantine started. So like in March, I just sat down and wrote it. You know, I just, I, I decided I, I'd kind of, I'd written two outlines and sent them both to my agent. My agent sent them to the editor of Cosmology and said like, the, either of these sound good. And he was like, I kind of like this one. So I just sat down and started writing. Um, and what I found was that it sort of, um, it, it grew as I, you know, as I wrote it and, and became more interesting and took on life. And that's what I wasn't giving any of those other ideas a chance to do. I, I wasn't giving them my full attention. I was sort of trying to rush to the next thing just so I'd know there was a next thing. Yeah. Um, so the, I, I, I don't, I, I guess what I'm saying, <laughs> I don't, you know, so it used to be something where I would, you know, sit down at a certain time of day and I always did it with yellow legal pads and, um, you know, a certain type of pen. And, uh, you know, now it's a lot looser and more just like, I mean, I'm still, pretty much on the I need to write every day train at least when I'm working on something but I don't think there will be as big a gap between this book and the next one because like I've already got things percolating and I'm not shitting all over myself inside all the time so it makes it a lot easier to kind of sort through oh that's kind of interesting or eh, maybe not you know um, so I guess I, I took a lot of the anxiety out of the process and what's left is the stuff that I'm interested in that I enjoy. I mean, there are still days when I'm frustrated and I feel like it's no good, but like 
that I can talk myself into like, that's just how it feels today. Tomorrow is going to feel different. Maybe, you know, does that make sense? No, no, it's, it's totally great. And what I love about this is like, I have, a, I have creative friends. I actually have some writing friends, but I really don't have anybody. Like I talked to my girlfriend about all the same stuff that you're, you're telling me about. And I'm sure she's just like, uh-huh uh-huh okay cool yeah the, yeah um so it is cool to like talk to somebody who you're actively going through it and you're not in too uh too far a place from where i am in my stuff so it's just cool to talk to other people about like this creative journey and process so uh no man i i get it like uh, can i uh to double back to something you said earlier uh, yeah that john irving thing in the stephen king quote i didn't coach him we didn't coach him on that at all, but like, it was exactly what I was going for from the very beginning of writing that book. So like the fact that like my hero recognized me emulating my other hero and, and like put it right on the cover of the book for me, it was just like, <laughs> you yeah. know? It, and, and I'm going to like uh, this summer, I read uh, Stephen King's on writing, which I think changed my way of even consuming any other kind of media are you like that too can you watch a movie without dissecting how it works or can you just turn off your brain and enjoy something um i definitely can't turn off my brain um there is a part of me that's kind of like ticking things off in terms of especially if it's something i was really excited about like yeah i remember when the the new star wars movie started coming out um, <laughs> You know, uh, I, I that that hypercritical part of my brain kicks in and is like, well, why'd you do that? Why'd you do that? Why'd right. you do that? You know, and eventually, like after seeing it a couple of times, you kind of come to terms with what it is. And then you decide whether you actually like the movie or not, instead of this movie you built in your head, you know, uh, or, or how you would have done it. Um, but I, so I think if I'm enjoying something, if something to use this word again, seduces me. Like uh, last night I watched Inland Empire for the first time, that David Lynch movie. Yeah, I don't know. I haven't seen that one. It's, it's well, if you if you like David Lynch, it's worth checking out. If you don't like David Lynch, this isn't going to change your mind. Let me put it that way. It's maybe the most David Lynch, David Lynch thing ever. Um, but what I, what interested me about it um, was despite the way it was shot, because it looks like some. It looks like it was shot on about the same grade stuff I shot my last short film on, uh, like consumer, very low budget consumer grade cameras. So it looks cheap, despite the fact that it's got like Laura Dern and Jeremy Irons and um, Justin Thoreau and it, you know, uh, was that somehow still like it, it drew me in and kept my attention for three solid hours, which is no mean feet. I only meant to watch like the first hour of it and then go do something else. And instead I just sat there and could not take my eyes off it. So when something grabs me, I, I get completely sucked in and sort of surrender to it. But I think that, I think that a lot of creative people, a lot of writers have a higher, you know, they're, they're, there's something I read, I think it was in a Sid Field book about screenwriting, talking about how even if you pay to see a movie or to read a book, there's still an initial resistance. There's a pull when you start watching or reading. And the movie's job is to basically, whether it's a romantic comedy, sci-fi, horror, whatever, is to sort of, um, you know, create suspension of disbelief so that suddenly your brain is tricked into experiencing this as something real, you know? Uh, and I think creative people maybe have a higher threshold for that because we're keen you know we're, we're we're wise on some of the the tricks the things that you know the the, the tropes and you know uh, it's a little bit harder to um to get us on board with something um or you know I also find myself deliberately saying shut up to myself sometimes <laughs> just you know like you're being way too hard like just enjoy this you know if it's good like you know yes there are things to nitpick but i'm enjoying this um so do, do you find that do you have a higher resistance now as you get you know, deeper into writing so now that i'm writing more i understand like sometimes i can just tell it's like oh this scene happens to make something else later in the movie make sense um or sometimes like when i'm watching a movie i'll be like uh 
Arrival is a movie I was watching just very recently. I read the short story it was based on again, uh, rewatched the movie. And there's this like subplot of these hillbilly, you know, National Guard people that try to take over the test site because they think the aliens are bad. And it's not in the book. And you can tell at the beats of the movie it's at that it was put in there just so there'd be like a little a little more drama and it wasn't really needed, but it's something that somebody you could just feel it when watching it, that somebody on a committee somewhere was like, we need more drama uh, here. How about this? I don't know. And maybe I'm making that up, but that's no, where my no, head I, starts to go now. I think that, yeah, you, you start to see um, what's intrinsic to the story and what feels tacked on uh, mm-hmm. what actually feels like it's of a piece. Um so I, I definitely agree with that. And I, I feel like that's also something that um, I have to be wary of in my own work is sort of like feeling, you know, putting something in just because it feels like, well, something needs to happen here instead of just being like, well, no, that's not the story, you know, and, and working through that much harder problem of, okay, why does it feel wrong instead of just put a fight here or, you know, have the yeah. National Guard take over. Um, and I think really good stories and films, the, for me at least, are, are ones that I end up getting so sucked in that I can be surprised. You know, I, I want to be made gullible again, essentially, so that, yeah. you know, to forget, oh, like, oh, I can see them setting this up for later or whatever, to like be so caught up in the moment that whenever that, whenever the surprise or the reveal or the climax happens, it feels you know, that phrase that you hear over and over again, surprising, but inevitable, you know? Um, And I think it's harder to get that, you know, uh, the, first of all, the more you watch, right. Right. Uh, Or read, but also the more that you learn about how stories are told and and function, you know, because they are engines essentially, you know, they're mechanic. (laughs) I have a hard time with like, uh, I get a lot of crap because I really don't think that Christopher Nolan I just this weekend watched Dark Knight Rises again. I don't think he's a good storyteller. I think he makes awesome cinematic huge rides, but the end I'm like, well none of why? Like there's no there's no like he doesn't follow any rules which some people like the Coens I think can get away with. But I think Chris Nolan keeps his I don't know. It's just hard cuz th- watching uh, Dark Knight Rises I was like why did this need to happen? Why is this in the story? Why is this here? So I have a hard time shutting my brain off with that. And then my friends are like, just shut up and enjoy it. And I'm like, well, I'm I mean, trying. This isn't his best movie either, to be yeah. sure. <laughs> I, I, I think that that one definitely feels like my, uh, I feel like there was probably like the death of Heath Ledger probably threw a big wrench into whatever right. his big plan was. And they kind of had to scramble. Um, and the movie feels rushed, kind of like Rise of Skywalker feels rushed too. Yeah. Like, feels like they're they're they if they'd taken six more months, there would have been a much better movie, you know. Yeah. Um, and but but what, that's interesting about Christopher Nolan. I so do you feel like he relies on tricks and bombast instead of like narrative? I th- I think what Chris Nolan does is he's like, you know what, I have this cool idea for a scene. And then I have this other cool idea for a scene and another cool idea for a scene. Let's make a movie that ties all those together. But I could be wrong. That's just my own personal like takeaway. And I've been called an idiot. <laughs> I don't think years. you're an idiot. I think, I think he, for even for as popular a filmmaker as he is, he's also very divisive. Yeah. Um, I haven't seen his last two movies, uh, Dunkirk or Tenet. Um, I didn't watch I, Dunkirk. Tenet was fine. I've, it's been a while since I've seen him, but I, I feel like his early stuff, like um, Memento and the remake of Insomnia are very solidly told stories, although Memento does rely on the gimmick of being told backwards. Um, but I, I don't know, maybe as his budgets have gotten bigger, maybe there's more pressure to build a spectacle instead of just telling a story. Yeah. <laughs> I, I haven't seen it in a while, but I... I, I I remember liking Inception quite a bit and even giving Interstellar a pass, but that might be mostly because of the, that amazing Hans Zimmer score. Oh man, it's so good. I got it on vinyl over there. Woo. I listened to it while I was writing Cosmology constantly. <laughs> it's, such, it's, nice. it's so good. Which is a good point. I think we're drifting too far away because like I've bought, uh, I've bought and given away three copies of this book 
I've loaned this copy out many times. I really like it. Um, I, we probably should have done this in the beginning, but what, what's your elevator pitch? What is cosmology about for those um, people out there who don't know? The cosmology of monsters is a family saga slash coming of age novel about a family uh, running a haunted house that takes place over the course of 50 years. And it's narrated by the youngest child of the family, Noah, um, starting before his birth and then going up through his thirties. And it's about basically the haunted house that they run and the very real, but also figurative monsters that are haunting them and sort of tormenting them uh, all through the filter of this little boy kind of growing up and learning more about his family's history and um, these strange creatures. Yeah. Does that, <laughs> no, that? no, that's perfect. It's not a jump scare book. It's a very dark, gothic, romantic-y, what the fuck is going on here kind of book. But it it does have, I don't know, I grew up as a very sad kid, and I can, I just got the character. The character got me. Other people, you know, my friend Kamiko was like, you remind me so much of this book. So it just... Yeah, I, I was definitely um, emo before emo, right? <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, I mean, I... I, I, I think it, emo was starting to come to prominence right as I turned 18 so I wasn't too far off um but uh but yeah I I, I it's definitely sort of a depressive kid dealing with a, a, you know a, a, a family that's been sort of permanently wounded um and he's got it's interesting that he's the one narrating because for most of the story he's the one with the least information you know right well, and that's what I like about it too, is we're on the ride with, with the main character on this journey, self-discovery of, yeah, journey of self-discovery. Yeah, it, it really is. And uh, in its own way, I, I think the ending is actually sort of a happy ending in a dark Gothic kind of way. Yeah, uh, agreed. And it's, you know, it's interesting when people ask me about, and it, it doesn't happen all the time, but um I forget if you and I talked about this on Twitter or not about Maybe. Uh, sequels or whatever, you know, that, that I, I got, a, I've gotten messages from people on Goodreads who are sort of one person in particular seemed really mad about the end of the book um, and insisting like, that's not where the story ends. And I'm like, well, I mean, I've got an idea for how to keep it going, but I'm also very happy with where it ends. I think yeah. it's sort of, thematically comes full circle right then um yeah how have the reviews been because i just i glanced at goodreads and this is this this is another book that seems to be very like some people love it some people are like well what is this but uh there's one in particular that i'm not going to even requote that i'm like did you even read the same book i read man what is it I, like for you to get these such wild <laughs> I, in the early days of the book's release, um, I kept up with it pretty religiously. And now I, I don't really go, um, you know, if I, I've got it set up so that if somebody sends me a message or something, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll get an email uh, to my personal email and then I can go look at it. But um, I mostly use it to, just to log my own reading and I try not to look at my own profile because for a while, like I was living or dying every time the score went up by like, or down by a 10th of a point. And last I looked and don't, it had settled in a place basically that I could live with. Um, I won't say what the number is in case it's changed because I don't want. Right. Uh, but, but basically I, I feel like the important thing to, you know, I knew going in that this was a weird book, you know, and of course, as an artist, you want everybody to love your work, but if everybody loved it, then I probably hadn't done my job right because it's, yeah. no one makes some bad choices. And it's also a weird book. I remember standing in the driveway um, with my wife, the, we, the weekend we sent it out to editors, my agent and I sent it for the first round of submissions. I remember just saying to her, this book is never going to sell. It's not literary enough for the literary crowd. It's not horror enough for the horror crowd. Because I, I didn't think it was a particularly scary book. I thought it had some scary implications, but I, I saw it as more of like a moody book, you know, more more dread and dark fantasy than, yeah. than horror. Yeah, it's more about using monsters as a metaphor uh, and exploring humanity by 
you know, just what they did with Frankenstein, like exploring humanity through monsters. Right, exactly. Um, And, you know, so I was delighted that it sold and, but, uh, you know, it's still, it, it definitely stung when people would dismiss it or whatever, but also the, you know, the, it's part of the process, like, you know, and it sucks, um, you know, like the first review, the first professional review for the book that came out just fucking trashed it. It was abysmal. Um, and uh, it was in one of the, the industry trades and I was just like, oh shit. But then I got reviews like Jason Heller's, you know, um, where, so you start to see like, okay, you, you if you're lucky, uh, you can kind of come to peace with like the, the work that you did and knowing that that work isn't for everybody, but it's really for the people it's for. Yeah. Um, you know, and the people this book is really for really seem to respond to it. Um, and that that means more to me than like, you know, well, everybody read it, you know, like the Da Vinci Code or whatever, but nobody really remembers the Da Vinci Code, you know. <laughs> um, you know, hopefully this is a book, a story that'll hang with its its target audience, you know, for a little while, um, you know, maybe they'll remember it in a few years. Um, you know, it's, it's only been like 18 months since the book first came out. So I don't really know um, yeah. what kind of legs that it'll have, but um, the fact that we're still talking about it in 2021 is a good sign. Yeah. I think. Yeah, no, I loved it. And it really, um, I had a hard time reading the world according to GARP, which is, you know, if you, which is what I read right before I read cosmology and uh, I just got really bored in the middle of it. And then I figured out, I was like, oh, I'm supposed to be bored because uh, the, the Robin Williams character, Garp. Garp is bored, yeah. Yeah, Garp <laughs> is bored. And I'm like, oh, that was kind of cool. But when I finished this book, I was like, I can't wait to read the next book. And then I, I ended up reading like 25-ish books, like really quickly in a row. And you helped to reignite that love with this book. Oh, thank um, you. And I... And because of this, like I started Googling and I'm like, what else is similar to this? I ended up reading the twisted ones by, uh, King Kingfisher. Kingfisher, AKA Ursula Vernon. Um, what, but it, you know, we'll talk about that in, in, in a minute, but what I really want to know is, so I had this idea when I was a kid, I was, you know, I, I was the oldest of four kids, six person house. And we, we were low, lower income, but I had this idea that if I could just write a book, and get it out there and sell it to a publisher, all my answers would be solved. Now you've, you've got a book, it's out there. You can pick it up at target. You've got Stephen King's name on the front of it. Did it solve all your problems? No, <laughs> no. Um, it, it did not. I was living with my in-laws uh, in the months leading up to us selling it because uh my job at the University of Iowa had ended and they hadn't extended me more hours and my wife had been let go from her job. Uh, and I still wasn't really making enough with medical stuff and working a full-time day job to support us both outside the, the house, even with that. But even taking aside the material considerations, um, you know, this is something I've been through twice now. I've been lucky enough to go through it twice. The first time was whenever I got into Iowa and the second time was um, selling this book, which is that no matter what you achieve, you're still you. And so if you can't live with you unsuccessful, successful you isn't gonna be that much. You might be more comfortable or she might be more comfortable, but she's not necessarily going to be happier, you know, or he, uh, because it doesn't solve your problems. I mean, even if I became a millionaire, I'd still be the kid, you know, who, who with the anxiety problems and the, the, you know, the shyness and, and the, the need for external validation and all this stuff. And that, that's, so that's kind of the, the epiphany is like, that's never going away. It doesn't matter what I do. So better to learn how to live with it and manage it, you know, um, and understand that there will always be problems and sort of come to peace with that, if that makes sense. No, no, no. That's, that's totally what I'm dealing with right now in my life. So again, thank you so much for, I don't really 
you know, it's quarantine. We're in a pandemic. I talked to my girlfriend about this stuff, but it's really interesting because I don't really have anybody out there. Just thank you. Like, I feel like I'm in a therapy session today <laughs> no, you know, talking with you. It's really, but it's helping me. I'm getting something from this too, other than just, you know, friendship and a wonderful book out of it. Thank you. And I, I should mention, you know, my, I, I, I'm no longer living with my in-laws. I, I did go through a divorce, you know, it, it didn't solve all the problems. Like there were problems there before and the book was a fun distraction and it made life really interesting. And I'm so glad that it happened the way it did. And I got to travel and meet go. I'd never been to New York before. I got to go to New York comic-con. I met Stephen Graham Jones. We were on a panel together, you know, um, I got to walk in central park, like all these great things happened, you know, um, but it's still, it didn't solve, you know, it yeah. wasn't the key that solved everything, but, it's opened other doors and, you know, like I get to talk to cool people like you, like who I wouldn't have met otherwise. Well, well, thank you. I appreciate that. And, and you like, I, I, you still have a day job too, right? Don't you? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a a technical writer. Yeah. Like I, that makes industrial pipe fittings. Yeah. Oh man. Like, so, you know, even though I could, I, I actually never saw you saw this in my target, but you know, even though your books in target, even though, you know, you're still going to work nine to five every uh, Monday through Friday. That's, that's well, crazy. the thing is with a book advance, unless you're getting something that's like giant, like even a, even a sizable book advance, you have to consider most of those are paid out in four installments these days. So you get sure. a quarter of it on signing you get a quarter of it when the book is finally accepted by the publisher the draft that's going to be printed you get another whenever it comes out and you get your fourth payment when um you know 12 months later or at least that's how it worked for me so if you actually divide that up what you end up with is not quite unless you've got a really big advance you know but even if you've got like a a low six-figure advance what you're looking at isn't quite a living salary, especially when you take into account that it doesn't come with health insurance. It doesn't come with, you know, so uh, it, it, the extra money is nice and it definitely helped because, uh, you know, that, that, that came from the book and that still continues to come in um, from like foreign sales and stuff. Um, but it, it, and it, it did solve some financial problems, especially, you know, uh, from grad school, like just leftover debts and stuff, but it, it, it didn't make it. So I don't have to do a job anymore. If that makes sense. Um, No, it totally does. You know, and, and it could still happen, you know, if, um, you know, I came pretty close. We, um, there was the, the, the book got optioned for TV. And if that had actually gone to series, then, you know, that, that, once you've got the, the, the TV money rolling in, then you can pretty much quit your job because it's an insane amount of money um, that you make just for having written the book that it's based on, even if they don't use you in any capacity to work on it. Um, And we came pretty close, but no cigar. And it's, it's too bad because it was a really cool, I really liked the director. I really liked the script. I, uh, the producer was really cool. Is you don't have to say any words, but does the director, potential director, follow you on Twitter and make things I really like? I don't believe that director is on Twitter. Oh, there's there's a director following you on Twitter that I'm like, are they going to oh, do man, something no, together? I, that's um, that's my my other like I'm I'm kind of hoping. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we won't we won't talk about it because yeah. I don't want to ruin anything. But yeah, I saw well, that. I, I mean, I haven't heard anything, but like that oh, is cool. my dream. Actually, yeah. is the you know, um, I I hadn't actually caught up with that filmmaker's work just because when when a lot of his stuff was coming out was when I was doing cosmology. So like yeah. I I I didn't really start catching up until after the book came out and I, I was just like, Oh my God, where's this guy been all my life? So I would love to get to work with that person, uh, without getting any deeper into it. Yeah. yeah, No, no, no. I, uh, (laughs) I'm going to just shut up because it's a, it's having loved your book as much. And I don't even know if we're, I think we're on the same page. Uh, but, uh, man, if, if, if that director can get it, his hands on, I can see something very beautiful happening. Yeah. Um, I, I, uh, I agree. I think it would be, 
the perfect mesh of material and filmmaker. Like, yeah. I, I know I'm biased, but like watching something else of his that a lot of people have watched, uh, I was like, holy shit, this is like my book. <laughs> like in terms of tone, the way it balanced uh, genre yeah. and human, you know, feeling uh, yeah. and family in particular. Uh, and, and, and uh, you know, you know what? I don't want to even say. All anymore. right, all right, we'll back off of it. I'm no, sorry. But, but that's that's cool that we're on the same page. I know we're on the same page. Uh, yes. Man, I, I, thank you. Like for my first experiment of hanging out on the couch, doing a chat interview, drinking some beers. This has been wonderful. Like I'm just so happy because, and again, I don't really get to talk to people much about my more creative side of these endeavors. So, um, and again, like I'm so convinced that we'd probably have been friends had we met in Dallas or whatever on the road, but at least now we have the internet. Yeah, we've got Zoom. We are you, are, you still, are you still in Arkansas? Uh, I'm in I'm in the Birmingham area in Alabama. That's um, right. That's right. Possibly I'm sorry. working on a return to Texas if I can get a transfer. Um, maybe once COVID has died down because DFW is kind of a hotbed right now. Yeah. Uh, where I forget. Where are you? I'm in Denver these days. Yeah. Oh, okay. But I was born in Dallas. I grew up in Shreveport, Louisiana. My mother is finally leaving Shreveport for uh, Waxahachie, Texas. My grandfather's right out there in uh, Ennis, Texas. So like all my main family is in Texas. So I'm like, maybe if you end up in Texas again someday, we'll we'll meet up. Well, I if I if I get to if book tours are still a thing after yeah. COVID, and if I get to go on tour for this, I. I've got some other friends in Colorado. So the, the trick about, and I'll put this out there for anybody who's interested in uh, getting, not just me, but any author um, to come to their store is to basically get friendly with your local indie and let them know uh, that you'd be interested in having that writer, especially if it's somebody who's regional and can just make a drive, doesn't have to fly. Uh, because where I went on tour for cosmology was based pretty much entirely on who invited me. I mean, we sent out, you know, press packets and stuff. And then the people who responded like, yeah, we'd love to have him, you know, or th those are the places I went. So I would love to uh, come to Colorado for a visit. Uh, you know, hint, hint, if anybody out there in Colorado has yeah. a favorite indie store. Uh, so I, I was also curious. So like I, I've got Joe Hill's collection of books right back here. Um, he's got a ton of short fiction out there. So when he came out with his first novel, uh, Heart Shaped Box, he already had a bunch of fiction published. When, Where is your stuff? Where can I find more Sean Hamill books to read? I, I only have three short stories uh, published. Um, you know, I, I wrote a novel that didn't sell. Um, and my current agent, it, 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 it was written in a style that's kind of gone gone out of fashion um, in the last 10 years and understandably so, you know, but I spent four years on that. And then cosmology, you know, I started in 2014 and we sold in 2017. So that's three years. And that's what I was working on. These books until now have been kind of a huge undertaking. And because I'm so, I was so precious about the process, like I, I feel like it slowed me down and I robbed myself of maybe opportunities to play like Joe Hill does, you know, in his wonderful short fiction, you know, and, and, and his novels too. But I know the novels take him longer than they take his dad, which makes me feel a little bit better, Yeah, uh, you know, because he's not publishing a novel every, you know, 12 months or whatever. My first story, Unpracticed Altitudes, is pretty easy to find. It was published by Carve in 2010. My second one, We're All Fine Here Now, was published by a journal that's defunct, but I think... It was called Spilt Infinitive, but I think the issue is still technically available on Kindle. Uh, it might even be on Kindle Unlimited. Uh, if not, it's like a buck or, you know, if you don't want the buck, I, I, I don't think anybody, you know, give me any grief if I just emailed it to you. <laughs> uh, and then this, uh, this last fall, actually, I, I had a, I was lucky enough to have a story in uh, Tor, you know, they've got their new horror imprint, Nightfire. And they've been doing the last two Halloweens, they've done an audio anthology of short stories called Come Join Us by the Fire. And I, um, this was the first short story I'd published in like seven years, my story, Music of the Abyss, which is kind of the last of my Lovecraft riffing uh, was, was part of that anthology. And it's going to be an ebook, but you can listen to it for free uh, on Google Play. And I think in February, it'll probably be on some of the other platforms like Spotify, but you can pull it up in your web browser. It's, it's, 
like maybe 20 minutes to listen to, um, you know, so, so that, that's pretty much it for, for my output. You know, I'm, I'm working really hard on making more, uh, but that's kind of, you know, between working full-time job and not being properly uh, therapized or medicated until recently, <laughs> that, that, that really put a dent in my productivity and it's already started going faster. And I'm really excited not to speed through the process, but not to be as slowed down by my own internal demons, you know, my own yeah. floating skulls of flame. Yeah. I, I'm on a healthy dosage of Prozac myself. I don't know what you're on, but uh, that's one of I, them. <laughs> a, a few weeks ago, I tried to taper myself off. Uh, I don't have insurance right now. And I was like, oh my God, I can't afford it. Yeah. Uh, and then somebody let me know that you can get uh, generics from Walmart for four bucks. And I was like, oh my God, thank God. There was a week I was weaning myself off meds and I thought the entire world was going to melt down. And then back on them, I'm like, oh no. Man, I can't even imagine. I would, I would actually love to talk to you more about that, but I've already kept you for an hour because I, that's that's one thing I really like is is uh, people now are we're getting more and more open about just being on Prozac and Zoloft and all that stuff. So thank you for talking about it. Yeah, of course. I I, I would encourage anybody who is in the kind of constant pain that I was like I was in such a bad spot I didn't even realize how bad it was you know what I mean like until I look back and I'm like oh so much of that was unnecessary like suffering that I that that like my brain sort of tricked me into so like if you're in that same sort of situation like definitely if you can afford it if you've got the resources you know, seek out, seek out help. It, it's, it's made a huge difference in pretty much all my family's lives. Um, you know, both my parents, um, me, you know, I have a small family. So. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's more and more common these days. And like, I found now that I'm on a healthy doses of Prozac, like I re I read better. I write better. I'm more productive. I'm not fighting this urge to go this way. Oops. This urge to go that way. So it, it's actually like, I, I thought it was going to be something that like killed my creativity, but instead I, I found that I'm actually able to focus my creativity more. So, and it sounds like it's working that way for you too. Same. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, cause the anxiety and I, I wonder if that's what slows a lot of artists down is because they, they, you can see what you want to do and when, but going through the actual process, which means making shitty drafts, you know, and, and making bad choices and uh, that have to be fixed later, or, you know, just not knowing what you're doing and heading down blind alleys some days, like that, if, if you can get past that and just accept it as part of the process, I think that really is incredibly freeing because, you know, nobody has to see it. If you get to the end and say like, nope, you know, I, I really screwed the pooch. Um, but you know, or you can go fix it, you know? So that's, um, I, 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 yeah, I would recommend it to anybody who thinks it might help. Yeah. And it, and it's one of those, I was talking to a buddy of mine who's in AA, he's, uh, walking across America right now. He's in the middle of Texas or New Mexico. And he's like, dude, this one, one foot at a time, you know? And I think for people who write one sentence at a time, one question at a time. So uh, it's, it's been interesting. And that's one thing I want to try to talk more and more open about my own mental journeys. And, uh, so I, again, I appreciate that you are into it and talking to me about it today. Of course. Well, thank, thank you for having me. I mean, we can do this again. I'm, you know, I'm still in quarantine, so yeah. you want to do a part two or anything. I'm, I'm definitely open to that. I actually think I might because man, there's so much stuff like you're, there's so much stuff. What's your, do you have a favorite bookstore in the United States of America? <sighs> That's a, or a couple favorite couple. Yeah, I, I think my my favorite, and it's really because is in Mississippi. It's okay. Lemuria Books. Um, that was the second event I did for Cosmology, and they kind of pulled out all the stops. Like they were putting up ads with people dressed as bulbs and stuff on you know on their on their Instagram, and um, it was it was a you know one of the biggest crowds I had. They have a separate building where they do the readings and everything, and it was um, 
And then, you know, the book came out in September and then they invited me back at Christmas to do another signing and I got to meet more readers and hang out. So I have a, every store that invited me uh, was wonderful, but like that one, I guess, has an extra special place in my heart because cool. of where it fell in the journey and just, I got to do a really cool interview that day. And yeah, uh, with Alan Rogers Daniels, who's one of the people who runs the Mississippi Book Festival. Um, yeah, so the, if you put a gun to my head, I'm gonna say Lemuria, but I there are very few bookstores I've ever been inside that I didn't fall in love with. So yeah. Prairie Lights yeah. in Iowa City is also really great. I love, I love that place. That place was a lifesaver when I was in the workshop. Like it's just a little beacon of happiness. Yeah. Well, I'm going to highly recommend this book, obviously, because I've just talked, talked to your offer a little over an hour about it. Um, I'll see if we can post some links to those bookstores in the uh, podcast description and the YouTube links below. And hopefully you can either buy it from those guys. Uh, is it, it's not still in Target anymore, is it? Um, I think you could get it off their website, but it's yeah. not on the shelf but, anymore. They just had it for Halloween. We, we want to support small businesses. Yeah, uh, get book- it from your local indie if you can. Yeah, I got this. I got my copy from the Tatter cover here in Denver. Um, and then bookshop.org is also a good resource for supporting indie yes. locals. Uh, anything else you want to talk about before I let you go? I mean, I could talk to you all night. I'm having a lot of fun. I know, me too. <laughs> like, oh man, I, I kind of like this living room setup. I, I think you should keep it. I think it, it's working for you. Well, cool, man. Uh, uh I guess just thank you for having me and let me know if you want to do it again. I do want to do it again. And uh, maybe I have this crazy idea where of doing like a book club with the podcast where I get like 10 of my friends together to read a book. And maybe I can talk some of my friends in reading this and maybe we can do like a zoom meeting with you on it and we can all talk about it and they can do a Q and a thing. And I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. I've I had this idea, but I've been trying to trying to like get it going, but it's hard to like, get it going so maybe yeah maybe, maybe this is what we need to do it well i i will i will come um, yeah. I, will, I will come to your book club <laughs> i am available. online book well maybe maybe one day to denver too so uh yeah. all right man well anything else no no that's it yeah that's cool for me too okay all right we'll cut it somewhere in there okay. <laughs> um dude thanks thanks so much this was a lot of fun yeah yeah i had a i had a great time this is